Hello and welcome to MacBytes episode 153. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. In this episode, we're looping the loop on our work-life balance whilst carefully adjusting the angle of the dangle. But first, another day, another gate. Hot on the heels of MagSafe Collargate, the connector is silver, which doesn't match the space grey model. We have news of MagSafe Unsafe Gate. Apparently, owners of the new MacBook Pro models are saying that the magnets are too strong in the connector. I know, there's always something, isn't there? Pulling on the cable doesn't necessarily detach it from the MacBook. One user claims that he can lift the 14-inch model by the attached MagSafe connector. So does it detach or not? And if so, when? Well, it all depends on the angle of the dangle. That's a technical term, by the way. Doubtless, physicists the world over are investigating this as we speak. But seriously, the only way the MagSafe works is if the cable is tugged in the right way. A variation of the you're holding it all wrong excuse for Bumpergate. We've not purchased, but if you have, do let us know what your experience with the MagSafe is like. We'd be fascinated. We do really want to know. Next up, remember the epic Apple saga? I know, it's seared on your brain. Mine too, sadly. Apple appealed simply to try to put off the date at which they'd have to allow developers to include links to external payment options. Apple lawyer Mark Perry had claimed it would, and I quote, take months to figure out the engineering, economic, business and other issues. It is exceedingly complicated. There have to be guardrails and guidelines to protect children, to protect developers, to protect customers and to protect Apple. And they have to be written into guidelines that can be explained and enforced and applied. Hmm, that's definitely a lawyer speaking, isn't it? Funny how making money never takes Apple that long, isn't it? The judge saw through the time-wasting tactic. The arguments did not sway the judge, who suspected that Apple was trying to put off the change for years and said, you haven't asked for additional time. You've asked for an injunction which would effectively take years. <laughs> well noticed. Well spotted, that woman. Having said that, I sure hope she doesn't need her Apple kit fixing any time soon. Apple are now appealing to the next level, referred to as the Ninth Circuit. Appropriately named, seen as though this seems to have been going round in circles for years already. But what do Apple want in the appeal? They're asking that the requirement to allow links to external payments not take effect until the separate appeal of the ruling itself has been heard. Mm. As I've mentioned in a previous show, John Dice and John Dice, Bleak House, it, it's like a rerun of the thing. Will it be settled this century? Probably not. But, but time will tell, and probably lots of it. I would say let's move on to more logical things, but there was nothing logical about the next one. So, picture the scene. There I was minding my own business, quietly browsing Amazon, when a bargain appeared. No, it did, really, honestly, it did. About four years ago, Mike was in the market for a portable external monitor for work. Sadly, work didn't feel the need to provide one. Doing the begging bowl thing didn't appeal, so I advised Mike to just buy one. Why would I do that? Well, 
It was a while back, but I well recall requesting an upgrade to my work PC in the early 90s. I was told by my principal to write a memo to justify it. Being new and innocent and naive, I carefully crafted a perfect five-page document detailing why he should invest in this upgrade. I proudly presented him with this, in the hope he'd be persuaded. He glanced at it, handed it straight back and said do it. I sagely pointed out he hadn't actually read the memo. He replied that if I could write such a justification, he was on board. Mmm, I thought. I clocked that. I filed it away for future reference. Sometime later, there was a paid-for software update I recommended. He did the same and told me to write a justification memo. I instantly said, forget it. He looked stunned and demanded to know what was going on. I reminded him of his flippancy on the previous occasion and said, while he might enjoy me wasting my time, I didn't, adding that if he didn't trust my advice, the problem was his and not mine. Strangely enough, he authorised the upgrade within seconds. But back to Mike, who also, sagely, took my advice. The next day, his shiny new toy arrived, and over the next two years, it was dragged to and from work and eventually only worked intermittently. He replaced it with a different model and carried on as before. It's an essential piece of kit. Obviously, I was tempted to treat myself. But really? Could I justify that when I'm the least mobile user I know? Which brings me nicely to the bargain that presented itself to me at Amazon, a portable external monitor, unboxed in the last episode of After Hours, link in the show notes. It was one of the daily deals. There was £35 off the usual price. I was interested. Then I discovered I'd been selected for an additional discount of £10, so £45 off. It would have been rude not to purchase it, wouldn't it? So... I did. No issues at all. Got the order confirmation virtually instantly. All was well. All the discounts applied. A couple of hours later, the dispatch email arrived with instructions I had never seen before. It informed me that for them to be able to deliver the item, one, someone would need to sign for it. Fair enough, I thought. Two, in addition to that, Amazon would send me a secret password, and I would need to provide said secret password to the delivery driver. In other words, they were two-factoring my delivery. What the actual? I understand the need for them to be careful of fake orders, but really? It's my address. I've lived here since 1979. I've been an Amazon customer here since 1998. Just who did they think would open the front door and grab the bounty? For it to be intercepted in that way, someone would have to have moved in. I think I'd notice that. I'm pretty sure Mike would notice that. And I'm confident that Lola would notice that. Clearly, deliveries are becoming a perilous thing, which would actually explain something else. UPS were charged with delivering our latest order of hand sanitizer. I kid you not, UPS delivered it. Can you imagine the price? You might find that overkill. I should probably explain it wasn't a single 200ml bottle. No, it was 60 litres of hand sanitizer. <laughs> Not joking either. 12 5-litre bottles. Um, but passwords and secret codes was taking this Amazon delivery to new levels. 
Just before 4pm on the designated delivery day, secret agent delivery lady arrived. It was a stakeout. We tracked her on the CCTV. It was like a scene from a low low. Do you have the password? I do. I shall say this only once. At least it was soon in my hot little hands. And acclimatising before its grand unboxing. Is this the way forward? Is this going to be every Amazon delivery? I sincerely hope not, because I pretty much say just leave it in the porch. I have no desire to be within, never mind, two metres. Think 22 metres of any living, breathing human being right now, apart from Mike and the dog. Just bizarre. Totally bizarre. Never happened before. and Fingers crossed. Never happens again. But I will keep you updated in case this is the way of the future. Let me know. Has this ever happened to you or is it just me? Oh, I could feel persecuted there, couldn't I? Very persecuted. But still, at least I got it. In a shrewd publicity generating move, Samsung have tried to embarrass Apple. I don't know why they bother. Apple can embarrass themselves enough. They don't really need help. But this was specifically in relation to the product of the year, the great $19 Apple cleaning cloth. In a special promotion run in Germany, Samsung have given away a thousand cleaning cloths, completely free to purchasers of a range of Samsung devices. Obviously, the downside of all this is that you need to buy a Samsung device. I don't think including a free cleaning cloth would sway anyone to buy an Android device over an iOS device. But it's a huge amount of publicity for Samsung at Apple's expense. Because even if each cloth cost them $19, the entire publicity stunt would only have cost them $19,000. And it's much more likely, to be honest, what would you pay for a cleaning cloth and delivery? Less than $2, probably. That would only have cost them $2,000. It's a sad state of affairs when silliness like this is making the headlines, not the glory of the tech they're making. It seems a long time since the glory of the tech has mattered much to anyone except us folks actually using it. If we could all get back on track, that would be grand. Which leads us nicely on to Tuesday. I hovered precariously between keen anticipation and looming dread. Why? A live event from Boinks, the makers of Photo Magico. It could only be a new shiny version of Photo Magico. So, keen anticipation, absolutely. Looming dread, mm. the potential of yet another impending subscription. Guess what? First announcement, we're going subscription. I kid you not. Said like it was a good thing. They even gave us the price straight away, as if it was a bargain. £7.99 a month. It includes the macOS version, the iOS version, snippets, tutorials, and you can install it on multiple devices. Attendees of the live stream were then pointed to a blog post explaining why a subscription model is good for customers. I decided to get the popcorn in for that one. I intended to enjoy my incredulity. Especially so since I'd already done the maths and it was going to take some miraculous copywriting to persuade me of any potential benefit, I can assure you. And that maths of which I spoke? Not tricky. I always put the serial numbers for my software in 1Password. 1Password also has the facility for you to put in at the cost of said software, which I did. So I could tell instantly that version 5 
cost me £35.99 and a version 4 before that cost me £49 for a total of £84.99. Also included in 1Password was the date that I'd purchased both of these versions. So, quick calculation. I had used either version 4 or version 5 for 108 months. £84.99 divided by 108 months was 79 pence per month. The subscription at 7.99 for the same period would be 7.99 times 108 months for an eye-watering total of 862 pounds 92 pence. Reality 84.99 subscription 862 pounds 92 pence over 10 times as much. So, having satisfied myself that I wasn't the one that was card-carrying insane, just what did that justification post have to say? The one with the title, if you recall, Good Reasons for Subscription-Based Models. I'm glad you asked. I'll give you the full text of it, but be warned. English is not their first language, so I'm going to read it exactly as it's written, but some of the grammar leaves a little bit to be desired. But there again, it's probably better than my German. Boink Software offers software under a subscription-based payment model. This type of license has many benefits for customers, which we like to explain in this article. The relationship between software companies and customers has changed over the last decades. Digital transformation has transformed the relationship into partnerships. Our software applications have never been static products, since there are changes and improvements continuously. Compatibility and new feature updates are getting released regularly. Software development means constant improvement, constant development, and therefore constant costs. As a result, our software stays updated and compatible with the latest hardware and operating systems. Because of this, we're in the business of offering software as a service. Through the subscription-based payment model, we can secure the ongoing development of our software products. Customer Benefits under conventional licences, customers run the risk of buying a product that is at the end of its life cycle. In this case, customers lose value. The risk does not exist in subscription-based payment models at all. The former periodical software update payment is not existing in a subscription-based licence. Customers can always access the latest released version without any compromises or extra costs. Customers always have access to the latest technology and their software is always the most stable version. The subscription-based payment model optimises the cash flow for customers because the monthly fee does not include any future depreciation. This gives customers greater freedom to choose and use software. We hope that you have found some positive thoughts about the reasons why we prefer the subscription-based payment model for our products. We focus all our energy on creating a positive business case for our customers and a win-win situation for us all. Oliver Breedenbach, CEO of Boink Software International. Shall we tackle that one incredulous statement at a time? Many benefits for customers. Mm, go on then, surprise me. I'll suspend my incredulity for the duration. Software development means constant improvements, constant development and therefore constant costs. 
Well, can I just point out, you haven't actually put an update out for version 5, which was the latest one prior to this subscription release. You haven't put an update out for version 5 of Photo Magico since November 2020. In fact, there have only been two minor point updates in the last two years. Then we had, through the subscription-based payment model, we can secure the ongoing development of our software products. Well, now we've all seen the maths, we certainly can't argue with that one, can we? Under conventional licences, customers run the risk of buying a product that is at the end of its life cycle. Not likely, though, is it, given that it's launch day, brand new version and all that. Customers can always access the latest released version without any compromises or extra costs. Excuse me? I could buy a new version 10 times over for the difference in price between the former outright purchase price and a subscription. The subscription-based payment model optimises the cash flow for customers because the monthly fee does not include any future depreciation. This gives customers greater freedom to choose and use software. Pardon? Optimise cash flow for customers. I wish I knew what they were on, because I could sure do with some of it right now. Then we have, we hope you found some positive thoughts about the reasons why we prefer the subscription-based payment model for our products. We focus all our energy on creating a positive business case for our customers and a win-win situation for us all. Hi as a kite. So, that's me not subscribing then. If you're going to roll out a subscription, at least be honest about it. Don't try bamboozling us with platitudes. Tell the truth. There are only two things you need to share. One, subscription is good for the developer. Two, the subscription is going to cost me, the customer, more. Is it a good app? Yes, it is. Professional photographers may be able to defray the cost. Obviously, that's going to involve charging their own customers more, but with a large number of clients, the impact would be minimised. The issue is prosumers or keen amateurs, those who do what they do for the love of it, or those who just don't charge for their output. Maybe they belong to clubs, groups, churches. Not all current or would-be users use the app on a daily basis. But with a subscription, you're paying on a daily basis and paying handsomely for the privilege. New features. Uh, they were completely overwhelmed by the subscription announcement. While they did have the chief developer doing a demonstration, the chat was just subscription, subscription, subscription. He was showcasing a maps feature. There was cartoon effects. There was an old film effect. All great. But are they worth more than 10 times what I paid for versions four and five combined over the lifetime of the version? That was a rhetorical question, in case you're wondering. Now, you might be ahead of me. The price of this subscription isn't far off the price of a full setup subscription. As I contemplated that, I was reminded of investigating setup about 18 months ago. Mike was literally on the cusp of signing up for it. And I was pretty sure Photomagico Pro was part of the setup deal. I head off to setup. Not a mention of Photomagico Pro. Was I mistaken? I seriously didn't think I was, but I decided some deeper research was required. It didn't take long for Google to confirm my recollection. Photomagico Pro was indeed part of Setup. I found several mentions of it being part of Setup from 2019 and 2020. I also found confirmation that it had indeed since been removed. 
No reason was given by either setup or boinks. It was a case of now you see it, now you don't. But it's pretty self-evident that boinks will make more money from a direct subscription than they would from being part of setup. This farce also highlights an issue with setup. If you subscribe based on apps currently in the setup library and they continue to be available, great. But if a critical to you app is withdrawn, not only will you have no choice but to buy the app direct or take a direct subscription out if you want to continue using it, but overall it will have cost you more. You'll have to figure in the setup subscription paid in addition to the outright purchase cost or subsequent subscription. So overall, a sad sorry tale of just trying to get a job done with software we've used for the last 15 years without selling a kidney to carry on using it. The problem with subscriptions is not any individual single subscription. And that's all the developers are focusing on, their own subscription, their own application. But the problem isn't with any single subscription. It's the cumulative effect of every developer claiming it's just a cup of coffee. Before you know it, you're buying coffee for developers worldwide. Needless to say, I wasn't alone in my opinion. I will put a link into the recording of the launch event. Enjoy reading the comments. I know I did. It was Microsoft Ignite recently. That's Microsoft's version of WWDC or Google I.O. It's where they announce what's expected to be released in the next few months. And this time they announced something called Microsoft Loop. While it is new, it actually builds on something that Microsoft announced a couple of years ago, and that was Project Fluid. The whole idea is that information is contained in documents, presentations, spreadsheets and more, and it's no longer siloed by application. So think of it as a canvas that you're able to drag content onto, irrespective of the source of the content. The difference between this new system and the existing sharing and collaboration options is that all the information is kept in sync, so there's no need to have multiple versions of files to juggle anymore. Everything becomes a component part of a bigger system. Now, obviously, for all this to work, you're going to need to buy into the entire Microsoft ecosystem. But that, of course, is the grand plan. The other big part of the entire Microsoft Loop idea is collaboration. Collaboration in real time. The announcement video showed multiple cursors with names next to each of them flying all over the screen, interacting with the content. Yes, real time collaboration. Hold that thought. We'll be coming back to it in a bit. But what caused the most comment is the look of Microsoft Loop. The pages part of it is the image of Notion. So think space for a hero header image at the top of the page and an icon to represent each page and then the content. I can see anyone looking at it thinking exactly the same. But delve a little deeper and you soon realise it's not Notion. But remember that real time collaboration thing. One article picked up on it and soon realised that the whole thing is not aping Notion. No, it's way more interesting than that. The title of their article was Microsoft launches Google Wave. And they weren't wrong. They were spot on. Now, unless you've been living under a rock since 2009, you'll know how much I loved Google Wave. 
Google Wave was so far ahead of its time. It fell foul of that seriously overused invitation-only initial release. That sets up crazy expectations. It also encourages people to sign up out of nothing more than FOMO, fear of missing out. So potentially it was the wrong audience for the service. The people who had signed up and got early access had absolutely no use for it, never mind a need for it. Without exception, I heard, oh, it should be more similar to service A, it should be more like service B. I recall Wave being compared unfavourably to both Twitter and Facebook, but it was nothing like either of them. It wasn't meant to be. But the comparisons never stopped. And the comparisons did nothing but hurt Google Wave in the long term. Microsoft Loop isn't even out yet, but I've been told by several people that it's a notion killer. <laughs> people who obviously don't have a clue. They're just spouting what lazy journalists have reported. But the TechCrunch crew were way nearer the mark with the Wave analogy. Here's a couple of quotes from that article. They opened with, Microsoft is bringing back Google Wave, the doomed real-time messaging and collaboration platform Google launched in 2009 and prematurely shuttered in 2010. It went on, some new loop components coming soon are a voting table, a day one feature of Google Wave and a status tracker. And they wrap up with, Google Wave was clearly ahead of its time. So, as I've said for years and years, Google Wave was genius. People just didn't appreciate it. As the old saying goes, pearls before swine. Google Wave was a gem. It was indeed way ahead of its time. Will I be using Microsoft Loop? Probably not. But, you know, I'll, get, I'll, I'll have a look at it. I will do my duty and I will have a look at it. Who knows? Maybe I'll be won over. Can you hear the scepticism in my voice? I can. Oh, dear, dear, dear. And talking of Microsoft, you work in a Microsoft shop, don't you? We've talked before about accessing work email and calendar from a personal device. We've talked about why I want to be able to do it. We've talked about work-life balance. But the subject keeps popping up. This time it was a colleague who, last week, asked me why he couldn't access his work email using the Mail app on his personal iPhone. We both have two iPhones, one personal and one supplied by the company, and neither of us can be bothered keeping two phones charged and up to date. It's much easier to use one device. I mean, I know how difficult it is to keep three iPads and two iPhones up to date without bringing work ones into the equation. Once I'd sorted him out, it got me thinking that the journey from 2015, which was when AZ first allowed us to access work email on a personal device, to now, is quite interesting. So I thought I'd share it with you. In 2015, AZ began a transition to Office 365, which meant more than just regular updates to Word, Excel, PowerPoint and Outlook. It meant moving from company-owned email servers to Microsoft-owned ones. I was involved in the project, creating videos and quick reference guides. The move to the cloud saw us being able to use Outlook in a browser on a desktop computer as an alternative to the full version of Outlook. Also, and this of course was my holy grail, for the first time we were able to access our AZ email and calendars on personal mobile devices legitimately and without any dirty hacks. 
As well as the videos and written guides, we ran drop-in sessions to help people configure their devices. It was surprising how many people wanted to set up their personal devices to access not only their mail and calendar, but Skype and Chatter too. Chatter, by the way, was the social networking tool that we had before Workplace. Configuration was quite simple. I can't remember the instructions for Android, but for an iPhone, go to Settings, Mail, Accounts, and add an account. Enter your AZ username and password and the server URL, and you were off to the races. Even though Outlook for iOS was available, the company actually blocked us from using it. It was something to do with security and how the data was handled on Microsoft servers. So Mail was accessed via the Mail app, and we accessed our calendars via the Calendar app. If you wanted Skype and Chatter, you got them from the Apple App Store. Move on a couple of years, and in 2017, the company tightened up security around the use of personal mobile devices accessing corporate systems and services. If you wanted to access your mail and calendar, or use Skype or Chatter or any other app that accessed company data, you had to install and configure an app called AirWatch. AirWatch is a mobile device management app, and interestingly, the company that makes AirWatch is now owned by VMware. Yes, that's the same VMware that makes the Fusion virtualization software for Mac, the competitor to Parallels. It basically allows the company to manage your device remotely. Things like updating it, installing mandatory apps, blocking access to certain services and websites. In the event your phone gets lost or stolen, they could do a remote wipe. In fact, they could do a remote wipe even if your phone wasn't lost or stolen. Company-owned devices were already using AirWatch and they were simply now extending it to personal devices. I was assured by the head of mobility that this remote wipe would only wipe company-related data and that AirWatch can't access personal data such as text messages and emails. And even if it can't, what about photos and videos? There's only one camera roll on your device, and I have been known to take the odd work-related photo, mainly screenshots for iOS-related videos. But I wasn't taking the risk. My thinking was, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And as I didn't want my photos or personal email wiping, I declined their kind offer. The other problem with my phone being set up with AirWatch was that you had to change your main passcode every few weeks. That's the passcode used to unlock the device. It was the days before Touch ID and Face ID. I know your passcode and you know mine so that we can get into each other's devices. So I really didn't want to be forced to change it every few weeks. For a start, I'd have to remember which one I was using and so would you. And judging by the MacBook password fiasco that we talked about in the last show, not a good idea. So my plan was to change the passcode when forced to and immediately change it back. But that plan was scuppered when I discovered I couldn't reuse the last five passcodes. So I got around that problem by changing it five times and with the last change, setting it back to the original one. But there were other rules as well such as not being able to use the same digit twice in succession. So I couldn't use, for example, 1135, nor could I use, for example, 1299, because 1 and 2 are consecutive numbers. In the end, I couldn't be bothered, and I actually uninstalled the AirWatch app, which you'd have thought meant an end to being able to access my mail and calendar from my phone. 
But actually, there was another way, and that was to use the Office 365 website in a browser. The only downside to that was having to log in every time. You open up Safari or Chrome, go to office365.com and enter your work Office 365 credentials. And then another screen pops up where I enter my AZ network username and password. And that's like a second level of security. All I can say is thank goodness for one password. They did look into closing that loophole, but looking into it was as far as it went. And this is how many people access their work mail and calendar today. In 2019, the powers that be decided that Outlook was no longer a problem and actively encouraged us to use it instead of the built-in mail and calendar apps. One of the biggest benefits was its integration with Skype for Business and then Teams. So you could create a Skype or Teams meeting directly from the calendar in Outlook. And that's something that the built-in calendar app can't do. Prior to being able to use Outlook to create a Skype or Teams meeting, you'd have to do it via the Office 365 website. So did I switch from using browser-based mail and calendar to the Outlook app? Well, I would have done except for one thing. AirWatch. So that brings us up to date. Where are we now? Well, last month we saw more changes. In a bid to simplify things even further, AirWatch is actually no longer a requirement. In fact, AirWatch is no longer used at all. AZ have gone with a different solution, a Microsoft solution called Intune. But, and this is a big but, Intune is only required on company-owned devices. We can still use personal devices to access mail, calendar, Teams, workplace and so on. But there's no requirement to have any mobile device management apps installed. Security is provided by entering a six digit code generated by a two factor type app called Ping ID. But you don't have to enter it every time. Just now and again, it'll prompt you, usually at the most inconvenient times. A bit like you with Google on a Friday night. In addition to not needing a mobile device management app, apart from the 365 website, Outlook is now the only way to access mail and calendar. If you try and add your credentials to the account section in settings in order to use the built-in mail and calendar apps, you get an error message. So where does that leave me? Have I finally pulled the plug on accessing emails from my personal iPhone? Simple answer, no. And no, I don't need to be checking my emails outside of work hours, but I do need to access my calendar. Probably not at the weekend, but because it's a global company and I get meeting invites sent to me outside work hours, I might need a sneak peek in the evenings. So I've compromised. I've configured Outlook to access my AZ mail and calendar, but the app is on the last screen of my iPhone. So it's out of sight, out of mind. Sort of. So, on to a hardware review. It was that bit of a bargain from Amazon on the first day of the Black Friday deals. It was the 15.6-inch portable monitor. Unboxed, videos there for your enjoyment, after hours 154. As I mentioned in the two-factor Amazon delivery, our portable monitor story started way back in 2017. Mike had discovered a secret hoard of them at work. He got to try one, fell in love with the idea, but needless to say, work were reluctant to provide one. So, bought his own, an Amazon deal later, and it was on its way. Perfect for working in different locations, especially when you're trying to deliver training when a second screen is essential. 
Fast forward a couple of years, Mike's working from home in lockdown and the original portable monitor died. To be more accurate, it went on a work-to-rule thing, working only when it felt like it. A replacement was needed and another Amazon delivery later, Mike was up and running again. At that point, I'll admit, I was sorely tempted to treat myself. But since I already had more monitors than desk space, I figured it would be somewhat self-indulgent. I don't know why. It's never stopped you before. Very true. But in this case, I did manifest an amazing level of restraint. But only until I found this portable monitor in the Black Friday sale. As I said earlier, it would have been incredibly rude not to. And this was then the subject of the most bizarre Amazon delivery ever seen. As for restraint, I have no idea how I managed this. But I left it for a live unboxing. Six days later. That is restraint right there. I was actually very impressed when I did finally get it unboxed, what was included in the box. Given the price, I figured if there was a monitor, I'd be doing well. But in fact, there were three different cables. There was a USB-C to USB-C, USB-C to standard USB, and a HDMI to mini HDMI. There was also a USB power brick, and the monitor itself came with a leather effect case too. It attaches to the monitor magnetically, so very similar to an iPad case, and it folds out to be a stand in its own right as well. There was also an instruction book, which obviously I would normally ignore. But this proved valuable, as I actually needed to read it before I managed to get the monitor working. I know, a monitor, the shame of it. But once up and running, it's great. It looks much bigger than its 15.6 inches, but it's quite lightweight, even with the integrated case stroke stand. While you can use that case as a stand, it also works on virtually any iPad stand, which is what I prefer. So I take the case off it and then just use my iPad stand. You can mirror the main screen or you can extend your main screen onto this monitor. I don't think I've ever just mirrored a screen. I really can't see the point in that, but that could just be my work setup. The point of an extra monitor for me is to have more screen space. And this provides that in any location with any device. As it turns out, the model I bought is identical to the second one that Mike bought, which is incredibly handy because they can be used interchangeably with the same series of cables, configuration and setup. It's a case of so far so good at the moment. I shouldn't have waited so long. <laughs> I'll be taking it through its paces over the next few weeks with live sessions, uh, recordings and, and any other circumstance that I need. And I will report back how it's faring. But at the moment, as I say, so far, so good. And I definitely shouldn't have waited so long. I will remember that for all future purchases. On to our apps next. And a few weeks back, there was an update to the iWork apps 11.2. I'm going to be looking at Keynote, Mike's going to be looking at Numbers, and then I'll look at Pages. The update brought four main features to Keynote. Radar charts, as with all the apps. Translation, which relies on macOS Monterey. And then two features that actually add usability for once. Live video and multiple presenters. So the radar chart feature is exactly the same as included in Numbers and Pages. It's not the most popular of charts because it's often difficult for the audience to comprehend what you're trying to show. You don't really want to have to explain the concept of the chart to the audience in addition to the actual data. But for the right audience, radar charts work well. 
Probably more of a thing to definitely have a play with is translation, which requires Monterey to work. With my maths-related brain, I'm no linguist, but it appears to work well enough. The problem is how it works and not the results of the translation. It prompts you to replace the existing text, which is a twofold problem. You might want to keep the original text and have a translation as well. But the translation, however you do it, isn't formatted exactly the same as the original text. There's extra carriage returns all the way through it, which you pretty much have to go back and remove every single one. I don't know why, and I've said it before, doubtless I'll say it again, I don't know why they don't just add layers and have one language per layer. That would be amazing. You could toggle them on and off depending on the audience. They'll come round to my way of thinking in the end. There's so many benefits to having the languages on a specific layer. It would be amazing application-wide to turn off the English and the German version, leaving you with the French, and then make a handout from that in French. Then repeat the process, but this time enable the German language, disable all the others. That would be stunning. It doesn't do that. If you want to have the same slide with multiple languages, you have to have three copies of that slide. As I say, they will come round to my way of thinking in the end. I'm sure Timmy is listening to the show right now as he's having his lunch. It's like all the stuff they added for remote presentations in 2020. It took a global pandemic to shift their thinking and come round to what I'd been saying for the last 20 years. But, you know, they got there in the end. The other addition is live video, and that's the ability to include live video on a slide at the point of presentation. So it could be talking head from your webcam. It could be the screen of your device. The possibilities are endless and it's a great addition. I demonstrated the whole thing in MacBytes after I was 151. I'll put a link in the show notes. The only alternative to this added functionality would be to use dedicated broadcast software instead or in addition to Keynote. Now, that's something that we use for the live shows. We use Wirecast, but there's also Ecamm Live and there's OBS, which has the advantage of being free. But the issue with all of those applications is they're complete overkill for most presentation deliveries. Live video is compatible with the multiple presenter feature in Keynote. You can, of course, do all of that and more with the dedicated apps, but it's an acquired skill to juggle it all. The live video makes demonstrating devices and interspersing talking head or indeed any other video a complete doddle. So there's no special skill required to use that. Just be aware at the point of delivery that there is a live video and use it to your advantage. Now, the multiple presenter feature was born out of the pandemic and Apple finally realising it was needed. There's a few steps needed to make the multiple presenter thing work. The first and foremost of which is the presentation needs to be shared via iCloud. And then those that the presentation is shared with become potential co-presenters. At the point of delivering the presentation, you have two critical choices. Are you presenting to a full screen computer or projector or are you presenting to a window? Now, window was added as an option not that long ago to facilitate delivery in an online session while also allowing you to see the chat, the conferencing controls and anything else you may need. Once that decision is made, there's one option left which is to choose to play the slideshow in the standard way or play multi-presenter slideshow. For the multi-presenter option to work, all the presenters need to choose that multi-presenter mode when they hit play. The first presenter will be the host 
and the other presenters can take control as and when required. It isn't a free-for-all, thankfully. Think of it more as a sequence of presenters, handing control from one presenter to the next. Think like the UK government COVID briefings, but without the constant next slide, please. All of these features are really good additions, but in my opinion, there's still a long way to go before Keynote has all the features of PowerPoint. Also scope to add a useful range of features that aren't yet in PowerPoint. So, for instance, we already have the live video here. That's not an option in PowerPoint yet. But there's so much that both Apple and Microsoft need to do to step up the presentation game. I'll await your call, Timmy. Don't hold your breath. The big news with numbers is that they finally added pivot tables. For those asking what's a pivot table and why is it so important, let me explain. Suppose you've got a table of data in a numbers file. Let's say a list of all the MacBite shows that we've ever done. For each show, we've got the date of the show, what sort of show it is, so MacBytes, After Hours, Marooned, live coverage of the Apple events, and the duration in hours, minutes and seconds. And I need to ask questions of the data. For example, how many shows did we do per year? How many shows did we do per year per type of show, i.e. MacBytes, After Hours and so on? What was the total duration in hours, minutes and seconds broken down by year and shown as a percentage of the overall total? Now, if that last one doesn't make sense, I'll give you an example. In 2020, the total duration of all the shows was 576 hours, 25 minutes and 50 seconds. That figure is derived by adding up the durations of all the MacBytes that we released that year, plus all the marooned, the after hours, and the live coverage of the Apple events. Total duration of all shows between 2007 and 2021, year to date, is 1,361 hours, 30 minutes and 46 seconds. So what is 576 as a percentage of 1,361? The answer is 42%. So, we can say that in terms of duration, 2020 accounted for 42% of the output of all shows. Not surprising, really, given the number of maroons. It is actually possible to answer these questions and get this information without using pivot tables, but it would involve a load of formulas. How long it would take you to get the answers depends on how good you are with sum if and count if and absolute cell references and percentage calculations. With pivot tables, you can get the answers you need in seconds without doing any formulas. Once you've told numbers where the pivot table is to be located, you're presented with a list of headings. And these are column headings from the data that the pivot table is based on. So in our case, date, duration and show type. And you simply drag the headings into predefined sections in the pivot table design panel. So to get a breakdown of the total duration of shows broken down by year and show type, I'd drag in date, show type and duration and specify the sum and numbers behind the scenes would do the necessary calculations and leave me with a table showing what I need. There's much more that you can do with pivot tables. You can sort the data so that it can be displayed in year order, 2007 to 2021 or alphabetically by show title or numerically based on the duration. So in our case, 2020 would be displayed first because duration wise, that's the year that we put out the most amount of content. 
You can filter the pivot table, which means only show certain items. For example, show the number of shows released per year only for the MacBytes podcast. Pivot tables can be made to look pretty. All the standard formatting features are available. But if staring at a bunch of numbers, no matter how pretty they look, isn't your thing, then why not create charts from your pivot tables? If you already know how to build charts from a set of standard data in numbers, you'll be up and running with pivot charts in no time at all. And it's not just on the desktop that Apple have implemented pivot tables. The iPad version of Numbers supports pivot tables too, although I've not had a chance to play with that version yet. There's a few little annoyances with pivot tables in Numbers. It doesn't handle dates well. So if I have a list of dates, which I do, the date of each show, and I want to analyse by month or year, then I have to create additional columns in the source data before creating the pivot tables. It doesn't have a refresh all. So if I have 10 pivot tables all connected to the same data source and I update the data source or add new rows, I have to hit refresh once for each pivot table. But this isn't an exercise in point scoring between Excel and Numbers. And let's be honest, Excel has had pivot tables since 1994. So for version one of a feature, I have to admit that it is pretty good. If you want to see pivot tables in action, check out the last few and the upcoming After Hours shows. And that leaves us with pages. And one of the headline features there is the ability to publish books with two page spreads. In addition to the two-page spreads, there's optimised images and more flexible versioning, which we demonstrated in MacBytes After Hours 154 last week, link in the show notes. But it's still not iBooks author, not by a long way. Still, at least there's a few more options than before. Pages also got the ability to quickly translate text, so it's virtually instant. Again, you're going to need Monterey. It translates into 11 languages. But I must admit, when I looked at the 11 languages, some of what I would consider to be the core languages weren't actually there. As with Keynote, though, seems fairly accurate in terms of what it actually does. But I do predict a few clangers that will go viral, a bit like autocorrect. Other things that they've added include flexible collaboration. And the idea behind that is that participants are able to add others to a shared document. Something probably more valuable in a corporate situation, maybe. But iCloud sharing is in no way optimised for the enterprise. Other quirky things they've added, I just personally wouldn't even think of this. Create a new document from the app icon in the dock. I must admit, the last time I saw my dock, which was probably about 2006, I thought apps already did that. Still, it was a while ago, so maybe I was mistaken. And then in common with the other two apps, there are radar charts. A radar chart actually lets you visually compare multiple variables at once. So it's easy to show similarities and distinct differences in the source data. The best use I've seen for this recently was in a pre-course questionnaire. This questionnaire asked you to grade your skills in specific areas. And then at the end of the course, you were asked to do the same again. Both result sets were then plotted on a radar chart. And that allowed you to visualise your improvement or not. I must admit, in one area, I actually actually graded myself worse at the end of the course than at the beginning. But never mind, it was only on collaboration. And, you know, who needs to collaborate? I did demonstrate the use of radar charts in After Hours 148. So, again, link in the show notes. So there's some nice additions, but they've still 
not added back stuff, removed in the great iWork feature cull of 2011. Ten years and counting, Timmy. Ten years. We have another live Mac Bytes After Hours on Friday. The usual fun and games together with demos and deep dives. Do join us at nine o'clock UK time. It just wouldn't be the same without you. Well, that's it for this episode of Mac Bytes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Please send your questions, comments and queries by email to thecrew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room and that's open 24-7. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash macbytes and you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thomasmike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Mike and Elaine bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. So how has your week gone? I'm exhausted. You need to take a look at your work-life balance. Work-life balance? Yes, work-life balance. The trouble with these two is I find it difficult to tell the difference. You have a point there. I know. They never stop. They are a little demanding in terms of their tech. A little? You are a master of the understatement, aren't you? It has been said. Still not long now, though. Not long until what? Their long Christmas holiday starts in a couple of weeks. The sooner it starts, the sooner we can get back to normal again. Have you not checked your calendar? Not yet. Why? You'll be unaware of them taking over six weeks off then. O.M.G. Tell me you're joking. No, they're not back at work until mid-January. That work-life balancing you spoke of. What about it? By the time they're back at work I'll have completely forgotten if I work at home or live at work.